I want to talk to you about something very important today. Uh, unfortunately, many in the religious world uh, seem to have lost sight of the importance of the Lord's Supper. In fact, uh, there's some that uh, maybe celebrate the Lord's Supper once a month or once a quarter, sometimes even once a year. And uh, as we go through the book of Matthew, we're about to wrap it up, but uh, towards the end here, before Jesus was arrested and crucified, uh, we find him celebrating the Passover with his disciples. And so we're going to look at this passage carefully this morning, and I hope to show you from the Word of God why uh, this is such an important matter. Uh, as you can see, here at Irving Church, we have a very high view of Scripture, of sacrament, and of the Holy Spirit. And so what we're going to see as we go through the Lord's Supper is that, number one, we're going to be looking at what the Scripture says. We're going to pay attention. We believe the Bible's the Word of God, and we believe that we need to uh, listen carefully and closely to what the Scriptures tell us about things. This was important to Jesus. In fact, uh, Jesus had stated in Luke 22, verse 15, as Scott read this morning, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This was important to him. He wanted and looked forward to this moment with the disciples. He had a number of things that he wanted to convey to them, things that he wanted them to understand. He wanted to teach them. He wanted to leave with them. And so we want to pay close attention to what Jesus did. Also, we want to understand the uh, spiritual value and meaning. What was the point of all of this? And how does this relate to us? And why was this such a holy thing? Why is the, the Lord's Supper such an important matter? And then we want to look at the spiritual realities that are involved in participating in the Lord's Supper. And once we understand that, once we understand the spirit nature of the Lord's Supper, uh, hopefully we're going to understand why it should be very important to each one of us to participate in the Lord's Supper. I want to share with you briefly 1 Corinthians 5, verse 7 and 8. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but of, with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Now, I want to point out that this context in 1 Corinthians 5 is not teaching about the Lord's Supper, okay? So I don't want to get that clear. Uh, this was a situation, a, a personal situation with a church at Corinth, uh, a very immoral situation, and the Apostle Paul was trying to teach them that this uh, had to be removed from their midst. They could not continue to allow sins such as this to exist within their, their congregation. But in the process of making his point, he does, in fact, refer to Jesus as our Passover lamb, our Passover lamb. 
And so the point we're going to make today is that Jesus instituted a new Passover. In fact, remember in John 1 verse 29 when John the Baptist introduced Jesus to some of the disciples there, when he saw Jesus coming, he said, look, or behold, the Lamb of God which takes away the sin of the world. So we've seen where Paul referred to Jesus as our Passover Lamb, our Passover Lamb, and we see where John the Baptist referred to Jesus also as the Lamb of God. Not only the Lamb of God, but a sacrificial lamb, obviously, that would take away or remove the sins of the world. Now let's look at the Jewish Passover briefly. The Jewish Passover was very important to that nation because it was a look back to their past of how their ancestors had spent all those 400 years in slavery in Egypt. They had cried out to God. God showed up in many miraculous ways, and throughout that process, he sent them a leader, Moses, and he delivered them from slavery. He delivered them from Egyptian bondage. So a nation that in some respects uh, developed in a foreign land as slaves and had suffered for centuries, God had intervened and God had saved them. He had delivered them. It also was a look at their present. In other words, a participation as you celebrated the Passover, Jews understood that it was their own participation symbolically, in the Exodus story. They put themselves in the story. The whole story would have been told at the Passover. And as the story was told, they imagined they themselves being in Egypt, being slaves in Egypt like their ancestors were. And so it was a, a look at their own situation because now they weren't slaves in Egypt they were being living in oppression by the Roman Empire, the Roman government. And so in a very real sense, they viewed themselves as slaves at the present time. And so when they would participate in this and remember God's deliverance, they felt the need of their own deliverance as they awaited a Messiah, which of course had a future aspect. They longed for the time when God would send the Messiah to deliver them from their present condition. And so the Passover had a look at the past, the present, and the future. In the Mishnah, which I won't go into a long explanation of that, but it's just, some, uh, it's just very important writings that made up part of the Jewish traditions uh, that they kept in the context of the law. In the Mishnah, it said, In every generation, a man must so regard himself as if he came forth himself out of Egypt. Therefore, we are bound to give thanks and to bless him 
who wrought all these wonders for our fathers and for us. So you see, when a Jew participated in the Passover, it was a very personal thing. Even though it's something that had happened years and years ago, long time in the past, it was a very real and personal thing to each one of them. And so when Jesus came as the Passover lamb, as the sacrificial lamb, as the lamb of God, when Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was delivering us. He was saving us from the bondage or the slavery of sin. We were slaves. We needed deliverance. We could not deliver ourselves. And so Jesus came to save us from our sins. And so Jesus set in motion, if you will, a second exodus, a new exodus, a more universal, comprehensive exodus. Let's remember, the original exodus was for the nation of the Jews, okay? But it foreshadowed or pointed to a much greater spiritual event where God would send his son to die for the sins of the world. And so, yeah, the exodus is a big deal, but I'm not a Jew and the bigger deal and the most important deal is this second exodus because it personally affects me and you and everyone in the world. And we need to understand that. The Passover resolved around the body and the blood of a lamb. The Jewish historian Josephus claimed that there were somewhere in the neighborhood of two million lambs slayed during the Passover. That's a lot of blood. That's a lot of lamb, and that's a lot of blood. A lot of death. The lamb was killed, the blood was poured out on the altar, and the lamb was then taken from the temple to where they would celebrate each Passover, each family celebrating their Passover. So, Jesus shifts the focus of a lamb being killed to himself. Instead of the body and blood of a lamb, Jesus shifts the focus to his own body, his own blood, his own life was given. And Jesus not only then kept the Passover as a Jew, but Jesus in a very real sense, became the Passover. He instituted a new Passover. He was the Passover lamb himself. So, we want to keep this in mind as we proceed because this is related to other things. In fact, you're going to see bread and wine show up quite a bit, okay? Flesh and blood. The flesh, the body of the lamb, the blood of the lamb, right? Well, I want to take you back to the Exodus, and I want to take you to their wandering in the wilderness and the time when they were complaining, they were hungry. They said, we had it better back in Egypt. We had all these great things to eat. And what would you do, Moses? You took us out here in the middle of the desert to starve us to death. We want to go back. 
Well, that shows in many respects how shallow-minded and even forgetful they were to think that they would actually want to go back to the situation where they were in slavery. So what God do? God sent them meat. He sent them quail. And he also sent them bread. He sent them manna from heaven. I'm going to read some excerpts from Exodus 16, verses 4 through 15. I will rain down bread from heaven for you. You shall eat flesh, and in the morning you shall be filled with bread. It is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now, in recalling this event, in Psalm 78, verses 23 through 25 and verse 29, the manna from heaven is referred to as the bread of angels. And in Exodus 3, verse 8, it's referred to as, or explained as wafers made with honey. Why wafers made with honey? Because the honey in the manna was a foretaste of them going to the land that flows with milk and honey. That's what, that was uh, one of the points of why the manna was made the way that it was. And then in Exodus 16, verse 32 through 34, he says, Let an omer of manna be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness. Now, if this was holy, because the context here, he is talking about the tabernacle, the innermost room of the tabernacle, the most holy place. And there is going to be furniture in the most holy place. And so when we look at that, in, in a moment, you'll understand more important or more significant, the more significance of the bread that's being referred to, the manna from heaven. Because we're going to show in just a few moments in Scripture where Jesus' statements about, I am the bread of life, is directly associated, it's connected with the events of God sending bread from heaven, manna from heaven. And so we're going to see how all of these Old Testament things and all these stories are connected and how it all comes to fruition in the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is connected with all of that, with the Passover, the manna from heaven, uh, the golden table in the most holy place, all those things. But before we go there, something very interesting I want to share with you. And I want you to listen carefully. Uh, you may appreciate this, you may not, but it'll at least give you something to think about. Remember when Jesus taught the disciples to pray. Lord, teach us to pray, Matthew 6 in the Sermon on the Mount. One of the things Jesus said, give us this day our daily bread. Give us this day our daily bread. Kind of redundant there, huh? Give us this day our daily bread. Well, the interesting thing, when you look at that in the Greek text, there's a word that is always used for day, translated into the English word day. Hemera. That's, that's the Greek word for, bread, for that, that, that daily, each day. Uh, so, 
This is not the word in that text. This is a whole different word. Epiusios. That word had never been used before in the Greek language. There is no record in any ancient Greek text of that word even existing. It's like Jesus, there wasn't a word in, in Hebrew or, or in Greek to convey what Jesus, in his own language, Hebrew and Aramaic. And so we all know the New Testament is translated into Greek, and this is the Greek word we're left with. But it's not the word for day. I think I said bread a while ago. It's not the word for day. So, a different word is used. Well, what does that word mean? Well, how in the world are we supposed to know what it means when nobody ever used it before? Didn't it seem to exist before? Well, let's break it down a little bit. Uh, the preposition epi means on or above or upon. And usia means substance or nature. Now, this is what's interesting. In the 4th century Latin Vulgate translation, Jerome translated this phrase, give us this day our supersubstantial bread. Cyprian in the 3rd century calls it heavenly bread or food of salvation. Now, it certainly is possible that in that prayer, Jesus was telling them, you ask God for your literal food every day. God to provide what you need. But if you do that, then you're, you, you're, you're translating a word completely different than the word is always translated in the Scripture. So maybe, maybe that's not what it means. Maybe all of this is a reference to Jesus as the bread of life. Give us the bread that we need. Not literal food, but give us our spiritual sustenance. Give us what we need. And the fact that in the prayer, right before that, he says, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It would seem a radical shift to make that statement and then immediately shift to literal bread. If you're thinking in terms of the kingdom coming and the will of God being done on the earth, bread from heaven fits pretty well. So, it may very well be that Jesus was referring to himself, supernatural bread. N.T. Wright says about this, Manna was not needed in Egypt, nor would it be needed in the promised land. It is the food of inaugurated eschatology, the food that is needed because the kingdom is already broken in and because it is not yet consummated. The daily provision of manna signals that the exodus has begun but also that we are not yet living in the land. In other words, what N.T. Wright is saying is that when we look at this as the second exodus, we're in the wilderness, folks. 
We've been delivered from Egypt. We're not slaves anymore. We have been saved by the blood of Jesus. And we are now traveling in the will. We're not in the promised land. We're not in glory. We're not in the new heavens and new earth yet. We're in the wilderness. How does God feed people in the wilderness? Well, he sends them bread from heaven. How does he feed us? He feeds us with the bread of life, with Jesus, see. So, and let's talk some more about that bread. You know, one of the strangest translations when we look at our Bibles and we read about that bread, you know, manna was put in a pot and it was kept on the golden table. And we already read a scripture in Exodus that told them to to keep this going. And we're going to read some more about that in, in a minute. But anyway, this is something that they were to do all the time. They were to keep this thing going. Just like the menorah, the golden lampstand that was there, it burned all the time. Never was to go out. The lampstand burns all the time. There's fresh bread there all the time. The Ark of the Covenant was there all the time. What was significant about that room, the most holy place, this important, critical room? Why was it so important? Because right there on the Ark of the Covenant, there were two cherubims whose wings were outstretched and touched over the Ark of the Covenant, and that is where God was said to dwell and to meet the people. That's why the tabernacle was called in Scripture the tent of meeting, because that's where they would go to meet God. That's where God was. Well, we know God, like the Scripture says in Acts 7, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. You don't confine God to a tent whether or not you understand it or agree with it. The fact is, that's what God decided to do at that time. And so he told them to build the, the big fancy tent and put this room in the middle of it and put that furniture in it, and that's where I'll meet you. I'll meet you there. So the cherubim are there. That's the mercy seat. That's the dwelling place of God. That's where the lamp stand, the golden lamp stand, the menorah, seven lights to represent the seven spirits of God. You read about in the book of Revelation, light stands for truth, light stands for all kinds of wonderful, beautiful things. That's why it's going all the time there. And then there on the golden table was the bread of presence. The weird translation, though, is that in many old translations call it showbread. Even, I think the King James says shoebread. What in the world is shoe bread? <laughs> you know? Well, if we look at the language itself, literally, the Hebrew word means face. And some of the modern translations translate this, the bread of the presence. In other words, this is, again, where you meet God. God is there. God is real. God is present. He is active in that place, in those things that are on the golden table, in the room. So what else was on the table? There were cups and bowls and things like that for pouring out libations. What was a libation? It was a sacrificial drink offering. What did it consist of? Well, most of the time it consisted of wine. So you got these things there in the most holy place, the wine. You know, that wine was not drunk. It's poured out. 
Everything on that golden table essentially was a sacrifice to God. The wine was poured out as a sacrifice to God. The bread's put on there as a sacrifice to God. You see, there were bloody sacrifices and non-bloody sacrifices. These are non-bloody sacrifices. They represent something very important. They point to something coming in the future. They point to something that matters to every one of us. Who cares about the golden table? Who cares about the bowls and the cups and the wine? And who cares about the, the 12 loaves of bread on there? Well, we should care because of what it means and what it points to is everything to us. It's everything to us. And here's something interesting. When was all that commanded? When did God tell them to put all that stuff in that room on that golden table? You know when God commanded that? Read Exodus 24, and it was right after they had this meal. Moses, Aaron, the elders of the people, the elders of Israel. And they ate bread and they drank wine and guess what they saw? The Bible says they saw God. And so God established this tabernacle this tent of meeting, this most holy place, this golden table, the Ark of the Covenant, all of these things, the pot of showbread in, in the Ark of the Covenant, the 12 loaves of unleavened bread on the table, all of that stuff. God told them to do that. Why? Because it pointed, it all pointed in some mystical way to His presence, His very presence in their life. God was there. He was with them. He was in that. And remember, we just said all of this was all of this was initiated by God, commanded by God right after they ate this meal. Why were they eating this meal in Exodus 24? Because of the covenant God had made with them. And when you study ancient covenants, and there are a number of these recorded in scriptures, when a covenant was made, a meal was had. When a covenant was made, a meal took place to solemnize and to solidify the covenant agreement. Because when we made a covenant we would sit down and eat together, and that meant something very important. The covenant is sealed by the meal. So, when they ate, it was a fulfillment of the covenant of Abraham, that God made with Abraham. It was a remembrance of the Exodus, and it was a hope of their entry into the promised land. That's what the Passover meal was about. So, let's look at the bread and the wine of the covenant. 
In Leviticus 24, I want to read verses 5 through 7. Because I always, when, when, I, when I took the Lord's Supper, when I read the Scripture, when I studied all these things, I always locked in, unfocused on what Jesus said as recorded in Luke and in Paul. Luke and 1 Corinthians 11. When, when uh, the Scripture said, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Everybody remember that? And so we would look at that cup and we would say, well, that's a, that is a symbol of the new covenant that we have. But I want to read this and I want to uh, hopefully expand your thinking just a little bit. In Leviticus chapter 24, beginning at verse 5, you shall take fine flour and bake 12 loaves from it. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each loaf, and you shall set them in two piles, six in a pile, on the table of pure gold before the Lord. And you shall put pure frankincense on each pile, that it may go with the bread as a memorial portion, as a food offering to the Lord. Every Sabbath day Aaron shall arrange it before the Lord regularly. It is from the people of Israel as a covenant forever. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, since it is for him a most holy portion out of the Lord's food offering, a perpetual due. Twelve loaves of unleavened bread. Why twelve? Because each one represented one of the twelve tribes of Israel. So what did the 12 loaves represent? All the people of God. That's what it represented. All the people of God. It was a perpetual offering. Every week it was put there. Once a week it was put there. It was a sacrifice. It was an offering to the Lord. The priests ate it now is it a coincidence that Jesus established a new priesthood and the scripture calls all Christians a royal priesthood a holy nation and we then because we are all priests we eat the bread that's, that's what happened that's exactly what happened what was that bread referred to? An everlasting covenant. I submit to you this morning, based on what the Scriptures say about covenant, the example of covenant meals after covenants were made, that in the Lord's Supper, the cup alone by itself does not represent the new covenant, but the whole thing does. This is a covenant meal. This is covenant bread. This is covenant blood, fruit of the vine. You see, in a land that was slain, there was flesh and there was blood. But it's the same lamb. It's one lamb. It had body and blood. We don't separate the body and the blood. It is one. Jesus' body, his blood, it was all there. It was right there. The body and the blood in Jesus. 
Our covenant is represented when we eat the Lord's Supper, when we take the meal, when we sit, so to speak, at the table and share the meal. The real presence of Jesus is here. Now, you can't see him, but that doesn't mean he's not here. He is with us. He is here. And we are sharing a meal with him. There's a representation of the golden table with the 12 loaves. And what is this covenant relationship about? What does it mean? It's a covenant very much like a marriage covenant. That's why the scriptures refer to Jesus as the bridegroom and the church as the bride of Christ. We are married to Jesus. And every time we share this meal with him, every time we take of the body and blood of the Lord, we are showing our covenant marriage relationship with Jesus. At the feasts of Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles, they would take the golden table out there where everybody could see it. And the priests would stand and declare, Behold, God's love for you. This morning, I'm a priest in the kingdom of God, just like you are. But as a priest in the kingdom, I want you to look right here. Here's a loaf of unleavened bread and a cup containing the fruit of the vine. This, Jesus said, is my body. This is my blood. Behold God's love for you. One more thing, and I'm going to go through this quickly. Jesus bread of life sermon in John 6. I'm not going to read all that. Uh, I want you to. I hope you go home and read it and reread it and think about it. But I'm going to take some excerpts from this. Verse 15 says they took him by force to make him king. The verse right before that said this indeed is the prophet who is to come into the world. That statement was made that uh, or that refers to a statement made by Moses in the book of Deuteronomy. There's going to be, God's going to send you a prophet like unto me. You listen to him. The people at this occasion, that's what they were thinking of Jesus. Okay? This is, this is the guy. Later on, our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, here's some excerpts I want you to look at. I want you to think about this in light of everything we've said about the real presence of Jesus being here, about the covenant relationship, about the face of God, the, the bread of the face of God, all those things. And I want you to think about this. These are the excerpts I want to share with you. Lord, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. 
This is the bread which came down from heaven. He who eats this bread will live forever. The bread which I will give is my flesh for the life of the world. And then think about that statement that Jesus made and then the statement that you read in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty four: This is my body which is for you. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. So what's the conclusion of all this? Jesus is the new manna from heaven. Jesus is the bread of life which came down from heaven. Jesus is the supernatural bread. The original manna was miraculous. And let me tell you, the current manna is miraculous. He is miraculous because he is God. He is man. He is the only begotten Son of God. He is unique. There is not another one ever was like him, ever will be like him. He is miraculous. And Jesus said, this is my body, which is for you. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, not such as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. Jesus was not talking about eating his literal flesh and blood. What he was talking about is their participation in his resurrected body. You ever stop and really think through all of these statements that you're reading in Scripture? That for by one spirit we are all baptized into one body. The 167 times that we read the little preposition in Christ, in Him, in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Over and over and over and over we read that. You ever stop and consider exactly what that means? Folks, there is something incarnational going on here. When we are filled with the Spirit the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, when the Spirit of Christ indwells us, we are in Christ. We are His. We've been purchased and bought by the blood of the Lamb. We are one Spirit with Jesus. And that's what all this is about. That's what this is about. When you eat this bread which Jesus said is my flesh, when you drink this fruit of the vine, which he said is my blood, there is something very real and powerful and spiritual and incarnational happening here. And that's why we do this. And it's why we do this the way that we do this. Broken bread represents Jesus' broken body. And poured out wine symbolizes the shedding, the outpouring of his blood. That's why this is broken, and that's why this is poured out. Because together we are looking at the body and the blood of Jesus and what happened. 
That's why we have bread, and that's why we have fruit of the vine. Because all through the Old Testament, all the way down, all of those libations, those sacrifices, those lambs, those feasts, all of it, what do you read? Bread and wine. And it all points to Jesus. So the Lord's Supper is a new Passover for a new deliverance. If you're a Jew by nationality and you want to keep on with the Passover, that's fine. But that's been fulfilled. Jesus is the Passover. Jesus is the Lamb. This is a meal with Christ. His real presence is here. And this is a means of grace for new life. This is the bread from heaven that when we eat it, we will never die. This is a covenant, a covenant meal. God showing his love for us and our sh showing our commitment, loyalty, and faithfulness to him. All right, praise team, come on up. Thank you.